Well, a writer and philosopher from the early 1900s by the name of George Santayana apparently was the author of the well-known quote, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Apparently, his original words were, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The point he's making is that it is valuable to learn from the past. I think we can apply that to our individual past, our personal past, and we can apply that to history in general. I think we can also apply it to good things and bad things. Should we not remember the good things of the past, even the good things from our own lives, those times in our lives when by the grace of God we, we obeyed God and things were well, so that that might become our practice? And should we not as well remember the mistakes, the missteps, and the sins, both of ourselves and others in the past, and the consequences of those things, so that we would not repeat those things. Well, this relates to the Old Testament books of First and Second Chronicles, to which I ask you to turn, Second Chronicles. You see, these books were written after the southern kingdom had been restored from 70-year captivity in Babylon. They are back in the land. We don't know who the author was. It is speculated that it might have been Ezra, the priest and scribe, who was instrumental in rebuilding the temple back in Jerusalem. But here are the people of Israel back in the land, and they're making a fresh start. And the burden of the chronicler in these two books is to give, give the people encouragement and hope for the future. And one of the major ways he does this is by pointing them back to their past so that they can learn from it. He wants them to be reminded of the good things of the past when the nation and their kings did right in the sight of the Lord and they were blessed for it. He also calls to their attention the times when their kings and they as a people were did evil in the sight of the Lord and, and suffered punishment for it so that they might not repeat that and bring themselves into judgment. Well, last week we looked at First Chronicles and the focus there was to remind the people of their origin as a nation and to remind them of the glory days of David and Solomon. Remember, a lot of the sins, most of the sins of David and Solomon are left out in 1 Chronicles. It talks about their virtues. Why? Because the chronicler wants the restored people to imitate those virtues of David and Solomon and remember the promise made to David that one day someone will sit on your throne that will have an everlasting kingdom. There's also a big emphasis in 1 Chronicles on the temple, the Levites, the priests, the singers, the instrumentalists. Basically, he's saying, look, as a restored community now, you need to get your worship right. Don't mess up your worship as you did before, but you need to worship God in the way that he has prescribed. And for them, that was all about proper temple worship. Now, this morning, we come to 2 Chronicles, and the chronicler still wants to give hope and encouragement to the people restored to their land, but this time, he wants to do it by reviewing with them the past kings of Judah and the things they did right and the things they did wrong. And the goal is spiritual encouragement for these restored and united people. Learn from your past, Israel, when your kings and your people did right, they were blessed. You need to do the same. When the kings of Judah and your people did evil in the sight of the Lord in the past, they were judged and punished. Don't do that. 
And so what I'm going to do this morning is review the history of the kings of Judah, actually most of them, although not all of them. And we want to see the lessons that the chronicler wants to teach the restored community. Now, there are going to be a lot of names, a lot of facts, a lot of history, and I don't want you to get lost in the details, but to see the spiritual lessons that the chronicler wants to teach. You see, there's a lot of overlap with Kings and Samuel, but as I said last week, the emphasis in the book of Kings is largely political. With the Chronicles, it is spiritual. He wants to teach spiritual lessons. So he adds some things. Not only does he leave some things out that are in the Kings, but he adds some things to give spiritual encouragement. Hopefully you'll see them as we go along. Well, we begin with King Solomon and the temple. The first nine chapters of Second Chronicles opened, uh, or Second Chronicles opens with a focus on, on Solomon's reign and the building of the temple. He continues to emphasize the importance of temple worship. And so chapter one speaks of Solomon's wealth and wisdom. Again, like First Chronicles, there's no mention of Solomon's sins, only his wisdom and wealth. Chapter two calls attention to his desire to build a temple for the Lord. And the main purpose seems to be, as seen in chapter 2, verse 5, this, the house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. And the following chapters have to do with the building of the temple, chapter 3, the furnishings for the temple, chapter 4, the, the dedication of the temple in chapter 5 with innumerable sacrifices, the fact that the glory of the Lord comes in a cloud to fill the house and that the temple represents the glory of God and the presence of God with his people. And then Solomon makes that great prayer of dedication in which he says, Lord, in the future when your people sin, when they have plagues and famines, and when the, the ground is dry because of no rain and they're given over to their enemies, Lord, when your people pray toward this house, will you hear from heaven and forgive their sins? He makes this prayer of dedication. What did God think? of the prayer of Solomon in dedicating the temple. Well, chapter 7, verse 1 tells us, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. God was giving his amen. God was giving, yes, I will do as you ask. In fact, he even tells us that in verses 12 and following. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night, and he said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heaven so that there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people, isn't this a famous verse, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will hear, heal their land. Yes, Solomon, I've heard you. If people pray in those circumstances, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive and I will hear their land. But the Lord also adds this, beginning at verse 19. He says, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot you from my land, which I have given you, and this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. Now you see how that would be an incentive to the people now restored to their land. Here you have Almighty God who has promised to dwell among you as his covenant people. 
He has promised to be open to your prayers when you humble yourselves and pray. What an incentive to them to obey the Lord. But here's the threat. But if you disobey me, then judgment will come even as it came prior to their captivity. And so to the restored community, he is reminding them of the promises and the threats of their God as they start again as a united people. But then we move on to the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, chapters 10 to 12. Rehoboam was the one humanly responsible for the division of the kingdom. Remember, um, he decided to increase the burden on the people. And rather than taking the counsel of the old guys, he took the counsel of his peers, his cronies, the young men who said, yeah, make it harder. As a result, the kingdom was divided. Ten tribes split from Judah into the northern kingdom under Jeroboam. Well, as a result of that, Rehoboam wants to go and fight against Israel in the north. But a prophet, a man of God, Shemaiah, comes to him with the word of the Lord, and he tells him, you should not do that. Don't fight against your relatives. And amazingly, Rehoboam and company, quote, listen to the words of the Lord and return from going against Jeroboam. Here was a fairly rare occasion where a king actually listened to the prophet and did what he said. Now, 1 Kings or, or doesn't include this, but listen to what Chronicles adds. And it seems right on the heels of Rehoboam obeying the prophet, we go on to read how he built cities for defense in Judah. I counted 15 of them. He strengthened the fortresses and supplied the officers with food, oil, wine, and as a result, he held Judah and Benjamin. He kept them together. It talks about how the priests and Levites from the northern kingdom of Israel, which had rebelled against the Lord under Jeremiah's false counterfeit worship, they actually left their pasture lands. They left their property. They came south to worship in the proper place in Jerusalem. And as a result, it says, they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years, for they walked in the way of David and Solomon. So you see, Second Chronicles adds what is not in the kings, that when he listened to the prophet, all of this blessing followed. Now again, what's the purpose? What's the lesson for the restored community, for their encouragement? If you listen to the men of God, the prophets that the Lord sends, things will go well with you and the community will prosper. But then we go on and Rehoboam's story doesn't end well. Well, it does. The next thing is it says when he was established and strong, he forsook the law of the Lord. And as a result, God brought the king of Egypt, uh, Shishak, against him. And um, well, there's a lesson right there. When he did well, he was blessed. When he turned away from the Lord, God brought judgment. That's what God does because he loves his people. There's another lesson for the people. But then his story doesn't end there. But we read, so the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, the Lord is righteous. And when the Lord saw that they humbled themselves, the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, they have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them but I will grant some measure of deliverance and my wrath shall not be poured out on Jerusalem by means of Shishak. Another lesson for the restored community. When they sinned, punishment. When they humbled themselves, God was merciful. We move on to Rehoboam's son, King Abijah. He was a bad king who did some good things. 
Now, in the, in the book of Kings, he's not given a very good report. It says of Abijah, who would be the grandson of Solomon, he walked in the sins of his father, Rehoboam, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord like David's was. But 2 Chronicles adds something that is not in the Kings. It says that there was war between Abijah's Judah and Jeroboam's Israel. Now, Abijah had 400,000 men, but Jeroboam in the north had twice that. He had 800,000 men, twice the number. Abijah challenges Jeroboam, though, for his false worship. And we read, listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel to David and his sons by a covenant of Saul? So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being a great multitude, and with you the golden calves which Jeroboam made for gods for you. Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourselves priests like the people of other lands? But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him, and the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests, and the Levites attend to their work. You have forsaken him. Now behold, God is with us. Do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. Here, we are told what the kings leave out that Abijah actually stood against the sins of Jeroboam, called him out for his false counterfeit worship. As a result of that, we read that God gave the northern kingdom into the hand of Abijah, and a great slaughter was made. 500,000 of the 800,000 of chosen men fell slain. And it says Judah conquered because they trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. Again, the lesson for the restored community, trust in the Lord. Don't forsake him. Don't give yourselves to false worship like Jeroboam did, and you will be blessed. Now, just a word about this Jeroboam. Remember, he was, the sins he started continued for generations. They did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was a bad guy. Now, the book of Kings simply tells us about Jeroboam's death. He slept with his fathers, and Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Just a factual political commentary. But 2 Chronicles adds something. It says, And Jeroboam did not again recover strength in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, and he died. You see the spiritual angle of 2 Chronicles? They want to teach a lesson. The lesson for the people is you commit idolatry and you will incur God's wrath, as did Jeroboam. Well, let's move on to King Asa, chapters 14 to 16. He was a good king who did bad in the end. Now, 1 Kings basically speaks well of him. He did good. He did right in the sight of the Lord, as did David. And 2 Chronicles also speaks of Asa in a good way. He removed abominable idols. And many defected from the apostate northern kingdom to him. He made a covenant to seek the Lord. He sought the Lord earnestly. And he gave rest on every side to the land. He even got rid of his mother, Meaka, because she had made a horrid image of an Asherah, the queen mother. And he got rid of her. I mean, that's some serious reform, right? When you have to get rid of your own mother. But... Here, 2 Chronicles adds 
that at a certain time, Judah was being threatened by the northern kingdom and the, the nation of Aram. And in order to take pressure off of himself, he bribed Aram to break his covenant with Baasha of Israel. Hanani, a prophet, rebukes Asa. Why? For relying on the king of Aram and not the Lord. And as a result, Asa imprisons the prophet, and the prophet is struck, struck with a disease in his feet. And it says, even then he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. See, again, another spiritual lesson from King Asa. Now, Tom Schreiner, the, the, the theologian, says that Asa presents a picture of Judah. They started out well, but later departed from the Lord and suffered consequences. What's the lesson for the restored community? Don't seek the Lord, but then forsake him, but continue with him. And there's also a message, don't trust in man, but in God. Apparently, Asa, at the end, he trusted in, in uh, being relieved of the troops from Aram, and he trusted more in the physicians than he did the Lord. That's another lesson. Don't trust in the arm of flesh. Don't trust in man, but trust in God. We move on to King Jehoshaphat. Many of you know that name. And I would style him a good king with flaws. First Kings says he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. However, the high places were not taken away. Second Chronicles 17 says the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he followed the example of his father David's earlier days and did not seek the Baals. So the Lord established his kingdom in his control. And there's an emphasis here on how, as a result of his godliness, he united Judah. All Judah brought tribute to Jehoshaphat. He sent men to teach the law, and they went throughout all the cities of Judah. It says, the dread of the Lord was on all the kingdoms of the lands. He fortified cities throughout all Judah. There's an emphasis on all Judah. And the lesson is, when you obey the law of the Lord, as Jehoshaphat did, it will bring unity to the people. Continuing with Jehoshaphat, in 2 Chronicles 20, Judah is being invaded by Moab and Ammon, and a great multitude is coming against them. And he turns his attention to the Lord. And we read that entire prayer this morning at prayer meeting, because I knew I wouldn't have time this morning. But he makes this wonderful prayer to the Lord, showing his dependence on the Lord. I only read the final verse statement of his prayer. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. As I said this morning, he was saying we're impotent and we're ignorant, but we're looking to you, Lord. Our trust is in you. And as a result of that, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jehaziel, a prophet, and he said to Jehoshaphat, the battle is not yours, but God's. Do not fear or be dismayed. The Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat said to the people, put your trust in the Lord and in his prophets and you will have success. And when they went out into battle, they were led by singers into the battlefield. And then we read, they did nothing. 
the Lord set ambushes and the enemies were turned against themselves and they destroyed each other. And they named that the Valley of Baraka, which means blessing. And the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace for God gave rest on all sides. Tom Schreiner says, Jehoshaphat's victory serves as a lesson for Israel in the Chronicler's day. They had returned from exile, but life in the land was tough. But just as Jehoshaphat was helped when he was weak, so Israel would prosper again if they trusted in the Lord, sang his praises, and followed his will. So again, lessons for the people from Jehoshaphat. He was a good king, but as some of you know from reading the narrative, he had a glaring fault. And his fault was that he was an unwise ecumenist. He unwisely united himself with the wicked kings of the north. He united himself with Ahab, king of the north. Ahab, who was a wicked king, whose wife was Jezebel. Now, 1 Kings simply refers to Jehoshaphat's alliances with the king in an informative way. No moral judgment is made. It simply says, Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. No critique, no moral commentary on that. Now, when you look at the results of that, you say, that wasn't good. Why didn't they criticize that? Second Chronicles does. In Second Chronicles 19, after Jehoshaphat makes an alliance with wicked King Ahab, that was the Micaiah incident, remember Micaiah, when Ahab gets shot in a chink of his armor and Jehoshaphat almost gets killed. And Hananiah, Jehu rather, the son of Hananiah, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? See, Second Chronicles brings a reproof which 1 Kings does not. Now, again, Jehoshaphat makes the same mistake when he makes an alliance with Ahab's son, wicked son, Ahaziah. And they agree to make ships to go to Tarshish. But another prophet by the name of Eliezer prophesies against Jehoshaphat, saying, because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. What is the lesson for the restored community from the life and example of Jehoshaphat? Don't make alliances with evil. Don't be unequally yoked with evil. Proverbs 13, 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You see, Chronicles gives moral commentary where King simply gives political reporting. Well, let's move on to King Jehoram. He's the son of Jehoshaphat, and he was an evil king. He becomes king, and he kills his brothers, and he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. But do you know why? Do you know why he didn't follow his father's good example, but he walked in the way of the northern kings because his father had made an alliance with Ahab and Jezebel, and Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, ends up marrying the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, Athaliah. You see that the sins of the fathers are, are visited to several generations. It does say, however, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David. 
And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and his sons forever, reminder, God's promise to David is not going to be um, reneged upon. So the Lord raises up Elijah to tell Jehoram, because he killed his brothers who were better than he, he will suffer a disease of the bowels, and he ends up dying in great pain from his bowels coming out. And it dies, it says, with no one's regret. Here's another lesson for the restored people. Be encouraged by God's promises to David, but be reminded again that sin brings consequences. We move on to Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, and he was an evil king. And why was he an evil king? Because his mother was Athaliah. His mother was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And the apple didn't fall far from the tree. We know how wicked Jezebel was. Well, Athaliah was at least as bad. And it says that Ahaziah in Judah walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil, quote, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. And he repeats the sin of his grandfather, Jehoshaphat. He unites himself with the, the king of the north, who is Jehoram, another Jehoram. And uh, Jehoram gets wounded. And Ahaziah visits him, and he ends up getting killed because God had raised up Jehu to wipe out the whole dynasty of Ahab. And Ahaziah is found there in the company of the king of the north, and he gets killed in the process. So Ahaziah repeats the sin of Grandpa Jehoshaphat and allies himself with the evil north. And again, the lesson is, if you are with the wrong people in the wrong place at the wrong time, you may just well suffer for it. Well, Joash is the next king. And again, I don't expect you to remember the details but the spiritual lessons are what, what matter. See, Second Chronicles is all about teaching these spiritual lessons. That's why it adds these details that are not in the politically oriented books of kings. So you have Joash. Athaliah, realizing that her son Ahaziah is dead, proceeds to kill all his children, her grandchildren. What a grandma. What a grandma. She kills all her grandchildren. My wife's a grandma. Some of you are grandmas. How unthinkable. But again, she's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. And she tries to kill all of her grandchildren, but one gets spared. You see, uh, Jehoshabiath, who is the king's daughter, rescues one son, Joash, and hides him for six years while wicked King Athaliah is on the throne. And then when Jehoshabiah's husband, Jehoiada, the priest, gains enough strength, he has Joash anointed as king. And this word, statement is significant because the king's, behold, the king's son shall reign as the, as the Lord has spoken concerning the sons of David. In other words, God's not going to allow the, the descendants, the, the line of David to be broken. That's why this one son was spared mercifully, providentially, because the Lord's covenant with David will not allow his line to be broken. And so, as Joash becomes king, they put Athaliah to death, and it says, so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had put Athaliah to death with the sword. Lesson from that, you get rid of evil, and you will have joy and rest. 
But then Joash, Joash's story continues. He does a lot of good. He raises money to repair the temple. And um, it says, Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. You see, the priest had taken him under his wing as his mentor. And all the days that Jehoiada was alive, Joash did right. But then Jehoiada the priest dies. And then it says that Joash abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this, their guilt. And so God sent prophets to them, as he typically did. One of the prophets was Zechariah, the very son of Jehoiada, who had been his mentor. He kills Zechariah. He kills the very son of the man who had mentored him in the things of the Lord. Well, the result is that Joash is defeated. He had a great army, but he's defeated by a much smaller army. It says, thus they ex executed judgment on Joash. And it says, he was murdered on his bed by his own servants because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest. Again, another lesson for the restored community. When you abandon God, and when you refuse to listen to his prophets, and if you do his prophets harm, it's not going to go well for you. Lesson after lesson. Now, for time's sake, I'm going to skip over Amaziah, and I'm going to jump to Uzziah. Uzziah, known in Kings as Azariah. He did right, it says, and as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. But the thing about Uzziah, it says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly and was unfaithful to the Lord, his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. You see, he was a king, not a priest. And God is concerned that he be worshipped properly. It was the priests and the Levites who took care of temple matters. That was not the domain of the king. But this king took it upon himself to go in and play priest. Eighty priests came to him to try to correct him. He did not listen. And as a result, he was struck from the Lord with leprosy and was a leper till the day of his death. Again, another lesson for restored Israel. Don't violate God's prescribed worship. He was a king, not a priest. He overstepped his bounds. He violated God's will and word. Then he resisted correction. Don't do as he did, Israel. I'm going to skip over Jotham and Ahaz and jump to Hezekiah, another well-known name. Hezekiah was a good king. And I just want to point to one event in his life. It says, Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, thus Hezekiah did. He brought reforms to Israel. He did what was good, right, and true before the Lord his God. Every work which he began in the service of the house of God in law and commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. When Sennacherib, king of Assyria, invades Judah, Hezekiah, much like Jehoshaphat, said things like this to the people, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. 
For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. The messenger of Assyria, Rabshakeh, comes and he mocks Hezekiah and his God. And he says things like, look, don't trust in Hezekiah, who's telling you to trust in the Lord. Have the gods of the other nations protected them? Man, what an affront to Almighty God. And Hezekiah prayed, and as a result, an angel, and the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land, and some of his own children killed him there with the sword. Again, another lesson for the restored community. Be like Hezekiah. Worship God rightly. Trust in him completely, and you will prosper. I got to tell you about Manasseh, an evil king who humbled himself. So as you're reading, you have a good king, and then he has a son who's an evil king, and the evil king has a son who's a good king. It's, 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 it's amazing, isn't it? It's, it's God's sovereign grace. Some godly people have children who are not all godly. Some very ungodly people have children who are saved by the intervening grace of God. Kings certainly illustrate that. So good King Jehoshaphat has a son, Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings, and he reigned longer than any other king. His reign was 55 years. He even made his sons pass through the fire. It says, chapter 33, he misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. As a result of that, Assyria comes and conquers Judah, takes Manasseh captive. They put hooks, thongs through his nose, and they bound him with bronze chains and take him to Babylon. But listen to this. 55 years of wickedness. But when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. As a result, God was merciful, brought him back to Jerusalem. And then it says, Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And when he got back to Jerusalem, he showed the fruit of repentance by removing the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and the altars that he had built and, quote, ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now, what an encouragement that would be to the restored community, that even when you blow it, even when you sin big time, if you will humble yourself, God will show mercy. So Manasseh, again, these details are not given in the books of Kings, but they are in Second Chronicles. All these spiritual details to teach these spiritual lessons to the restored community. And then Lastly, Josiah. Got to include him because he was an excellent king. Nothing negative is said about him. One of the greatest kings, uh, but it was too late for God to reverse his judgment on Judah. They were already condemned to captivity, but he was a godly king during his reign. The book of the law was rediscovered by Hilkiah the priest. And when he heard the words of the law rediscovered, 
It says, Josiah tore his clothes and he said, go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. When he heard the word of the Lord, he realized this is why judgment has come upon us because we were so wicked. And it was he was grievous to him, and he expressed in Hebrew fashion his grief by ripping his clothes. So Hilkiah goes to Huldah the prophetess, and she confirms what Josiah knew. Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book which they read in the presence of the king of Judah. But it goes on to say, but to the king of Judah, Josiah... Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, I truly have heard you. I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace so your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. Lesson for Israel. If you would be spared evil, humble yourself before the word of God and act in obedience, as did King Josiah. But it was too late for Judah. They were slated for captivity. But it does end with the promise of restoration under King Cyrus. So, friends, there we have Second Chronicles, a book of hope for the people now back in their land as they're making a fresh start the author parades in front of them all their previous kings, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the beautiful, so that they might learn lessons from their past. Well, what can we learn for our own lives, both as individuals and as a church, from this message of Second Chronicles? First, we too need to learn from our past. We need to learn from our individual past. Don't we all have memories of our past? We have memories of the days before we knew the Lord. And we have memories of times perhaps when we knew the Lord, we were saved, but we were not walking closely with him. And they're painful memories. Memories of sins committed, of duties neglected, of failures as husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, churchmen, and witnesses to the lost. I have shared with you my own memories of my imbalances in pastoral ministry, which I don't want to repeat. And although in Jesus all of our past sins are forgiven, we do well to remember those painful memories and let them serve as spurs to us not to fall back into those sins of the past. But then we also have memories of high points in our Christian lives, don't we? Times when we were walking closely with the Lord. We were communing with him in his word. His word was coming alive to us. Communing with him in prayer. We were in fellowship with God's people. We sensed that we were being a light to the unbelievers around us. Well, let's remember those things as well so that we might repeat them and that those seasons might become more the rule and not the exception in our lives. So we, too, need to learn from our past, from our individual past. But I think 
we can say we can learn from our church past. Now, we don't have a long history together as a church because we're a young church, but most of us have history with churches, right? Either as leaders in the church or as people in the church. We have memories of our past experiences in other churches. Some of them are good, good memories. Things that were done well by pastors, things that were done well in the church community. Oh, we need to learn from those things so that we might practice those things ourselves here and now. Some of us have bad experiences from previous churches, either as leaders or as people in the church. We need to learn from those bad experiences so that we don't repeat them here and now, so that we might be a church that is of maximum edification to God's people and brings maximum glory to God. You see, we have a fund of experience from our pasts, some painful and some pleasant, from which we need to learn for our good moving forward. But then we can also learn from Judah's past. We learn from our own past, individually and corporately, but we can learn things from Judah's past. In other words, some of the lessons that the chronicler wanted to teach the restored community of Judah are lessons that God's people need to learn for all time. One main one is obedience to the Lord and his word brings blessing. Didn't that come from so many passages? Obey the Lord and it will bring blessing. Now, friends, let me say, let me preface by saying we are not saved by our good works or by our obedience. Before being saved, are you aware that you never did a good work before you were saved? The Bible calls them dead works because they were done in order to earn the favor of God. They were self-righteous works. They were obnoxious in God's sight. Before we were converted, we never did a good work, not one. There's none good, none who does good. Paul says in Romans 3, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and even our faith was a gift of God. And it is also true that God is so merciful that as his people, he doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve, does he? So much more that we would deserve in terms of chastisement, but God overlooks those things. He is so kind. His yoke is kind and easy. He is so merciful. But having said all that, there is still a principle at play in God's world that if we are to enjoy his full blessing upon us, we need to obey him out of love for him. Now, first of all, the true people of God do obey him. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's what we do. Because we love him, we keep his commandments. John, the apostle, said in 1 John 2, 4, if anyone says I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he's what? He's a liar. The truth is not in him. So God's people do obey Jesus out of love. But if we are to know the nearness of his fellowship, the power of his life within us, we do need to be those who do what he says. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said at the end, he who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them is like a man who builds his house on the sand. And the rains come, the winds blow, and what else happens? The floods come, 
and great is the fall of that house. But he who hears these words of mine, the words he has just taught and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock and the rains come and the winds blow and the floods come up, but the house stands. And so if we want, even as his people, his full blessing, the fullness of the abundant life Jesus came to give, we too need to obey him out of love. The Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And so like the Israelites, he's saying, look, your kings and your people disobeyed God in the past, and they suffered horribly for it. Now you're making a fresh start. Don't do that. Be obedient. See what happens when, when your people obeyed God. There was blessing and prosperity. You follow that example, and that's true for us. I think another lesson they needed to learn and we need to learn is the company we keep has consequences. Because Jehoshaphat allied himself with wicked King Ahab, he almost got killed himself, but then his son marries their daughter and continues in wickedness. And then the daughter, Athaliah has a, Athaliah has a son and he's wicked because his mother was his counselor and, and the sins of the fathers are visited upon the children to several generations. Whom you marry will have an effect for generations. It's important. And also the friends we keep will influence us. He who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will suffer harm. And today, companionship needs to be expanded, doesn't it? Because of the pervasive influence of social media. Your friends are not only those that you hang out with in the flesh personally, but our friends include, um, you know, the Facebook and Instagram posts that we frequent, the podcasts we listen to, the people that we constantly text back and forth. They needed to be added to the other forms of friendship because they are influencing us. And we need to follow that principle. Walk with wise men, wise people, and you will be wise. Bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15. And then another lesson we saw that applies to us is God's power comes through human weakness. That beautiful prayer of Jehoshaphat. Lord, we're powerless. We are impotent and we are ignorant. We, have, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And God just came and unleashed his mighty power and that is the secret to the Christian life, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. God loves it when we have a disposition of weakness and helplessness and dependency upon him. America has a can-do mentality. I like to say Christians have a can-do-nothing mentality because Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But when we rely on him, all the power of heaven is unleashed on our behalf, his power perfected in weakness. And then another lesson, we need to worship God acceptably. When King Uzziah went into the temple and played priest, God got angry and struck him with leprosy. You're not a priest. You're out of bounds. You're not in your lane. God cares about how we worship him properly. He cares about the life of the church. He cares about the proper structure, just like he cared about proper temple worship. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the instrumentalists doing the right thing in the right way at the right time. He cares about the structure of his new covenant temple, the church. He wants the right men to be elders, the right men to be deacons. 
He wants our worship to be conformed to his word as best we can. He cares about that. We don't want to bring him strange fire. And then finally, God receives humble, repentant sinners. Didn't it come through more than once? When Rehoboam humbled himself, the Lord lessened his judgment. When Manasseh, after 55 years of wicked rule, gets taken with a ring in his nose and bronze fetters to captivity, he humbles himself, recognizes that Yahweh is really God, and God is merciful to him. Oh, this has a message for, for unbelievers and believers alike. If you are an unbeliever, unconverted, unregenerated, my friend, God calls you to humble yourself and recognize that you are a sinner separated from God, and the only one who can reconnect you to God is Jesus Christ, because only he paid for our sins on the cross. But there's the hope that if you, I don't care how many sins you've done, how long you've done it, if you but repent of your sin and call upon Jesus for mercy, he's full of mercy, he will come, and he will save you instantaneously if you humble yourself before him. But as for the believer, we continue to sin, but the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from sin as we come again and again after sinning to that fountain for sin and uncleanness. If we, as his people, confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your lessons to Israel of old are still relevant for us today. Help us to learn those same lessons that were being taught to the restored community of Israel back in their land and to walk in your ways, knowing that we will then have your blessing. May the nearness of our God be our greatest good. We pray in Jesus' name.